Today our scripture reading comes from Psalm 139, and we're reading verses 13 through 16. And you'll find it on page 974, page 974 of the Church Bible. If you're watching from home, or perhaps on this Labor Day weekend, you're at the beach with family and friends, and you're tuning in this morning, it would be helpful for you to have your Bible open on your lap as well, as we come to read together Psalm 139, beginning at verse 13. David, who wrote so many of the Old Testament Psalms, is halfway through Psalm 139, and he is caught up in adoration and absolute awe at the love and grace of God and God's ability to know Him intimately. And so he writes, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading of His Holy Word. A couple of weeks ago, we started this series called Faith and Culture, and in essence, we're looking at how do we live out our faith in the context of a 21st century culture. And over these Sundays together, we'll be dealing with some of the tough issues we come across. And I mentioned two weeks ago the following. Now, I won't show this every week, but it's helpful to put it in its contextual backdrop. We said then we will be exploring and navigating our way around some of the cultural landmines and hot topics of our day. We will touch on issues of human sexuality, abortion, sexual identity, and marriage. We will also wrestle with how we respond as Christians to a society shaped by a 24-hour news cycle, social media feeds, and the subtle but often unseen undercurrents of ideas, values, cultural artifacts, issues, institutions, and social structures. And so that's where we're going over the next couple of weeks. And today we're looking at the sanctity of life and the tension between the sanctity of life and what is culturally uh, considered and often called abortion. And so that's where we're going this morning. And hopefully I'll deal with it without any gratuitous detail at all. And of course, you would expect me to do that. And we'll deal with it tastefully and carefully as well, because it is a sensitive and controversial issue. And it demands we approach it that way. And so as we come to Psalm 139, we read those wonderful words when, as I said earlier, David is caught up in a moment of adoration and devotion. We are, after all, reading one of his prayers. And as his heart and mind soars heavenward, he writes of God creating him, for you created my inmost being. In other words, my heart, my mind, my soul, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And he creates that picture that we're very familiar with today. And David, of course, is reflecting what is said elsewhere in Scripture. 
And in the book of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we have a scenario there where God says of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, let us create man in our image. In other words, capable of having a relationship, capable of determining moral and spiritual values, capable of interacting with and loving others. And all of that is called part of the God's creation ordinance. He made us in His image. And in fact, in chapter 2, verses, uh, let me see if I can do this off the top of my head, chapter 2, verse 7, we see what's called the distinctives of humanity. And the passage reads like this, God breathed into his nostrils, into humanity, the breath of life, and made him a living being. And that's what sets us apart from everything else in God's created order. In other words, we are made in God's image for, as we said moments ago, this intelligent, moral, uh, excuse me, being capable of relationship with one another, and supremely, of course, with God Himself. Now, having said that, as Christian people, we recognize that life is sacred, that it is filled with joy and blessing and fulfillment and contentment. Now, there are other times when we face challenges and difficulties and hardships, and we know that, but we also celebrate the wonder of life itself. And when that life is taken away, it is to us shocking, it's overwhelming, it's saddening, it's outrageous. And let me try and illustrate it this way. Think back over the last, let's say, 10 years, 2013, and think of some of the news headlines that has caught you by surprise. And sadly, these headlines will be more often than we would like. And let's imagine this afternoon you're watching news, or you can think back a couple of years, and a terrorist bomb has gone off in a marketplace in Afghanistan or Iraq or somewhere. And we think to ourselves, wow, 35 people dead, 120 injured, and we are just absolutely appalled. Or, as was the case 2015 in Paris, France, at a concert, several bombs went off and gunmen sprayed the place with automatic fire. Similarly, in Manchester, England in 2017, sadly, we see it today for us in shopping malls and schools or sometimes in churches as well. And we are utterly appalled, and rightly so. And somewhere in the midst of all of that, we say to ourselves, how can this be happening? It is absolutely barbaric, the taking of human life innocent people have lost their lives. And we know that. Why? Because we identify with those who have lost their lives. We are empathetic towards families who have lost loved ones, and we can imagine us being in a similar situation, and it's just dreadful. And that's because we have an understanding of the sanctity of human life. It is sacred. It is special. 
It is so special and so sacred, in fact, we have it as a foundational part of our country's founding documents. We see it in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. In other words, beyond discussion, beyond debate, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator, not by culture, not by society, but endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are, number one, life itself. And from life comes liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But life is right at the top of that list. It is sacred in our eyes. United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Article 3, almost identical language. Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the security of person. Life for us is rightly sacred. And we would say that Scripture teaches, and it clearly teaches, from the moment of conception through gestation to natural death, life is sacred. It's not to be treated casually. It's not to be dismissed, but it's to hold a special place. And whenever we get into these kind of issues, often you find that there are a number of other issues that are raised in the conversation. And we end up focusing on medical ethics, procreative technology, embryo experimentation, medical life support, artificial insemination, in vitro fertilization, euthanasia, a woman's right to choose her reproductive circumstances, are all issues that society wrestles with. And as a society and culture, as we wrestle through these issues, those are tough issues to deal with. But as Christian people living out our life, we have to deal with them. Now, you may be watching by live, uh, live screen broadcast this morning or here in the worship service itself, and you're saying, Richard, I, I'm here for the first time. Baptismal family, please forgive me. Here you are turning up on a normal Sunday to celebrate baptism, and I'm looking at something as deep and difficult as the sanctity of human life. But the question becomes this. Rather than deal with it in terms of medical ethics and, what can we say, abstract concepts, allow me to paint for you a picture and let me encourage you to use your imagination. Now, choir, it's usually about this time in the service that about a third of the congregation go to sleep. So keep an eye on them and make sure they're watching and listening, please. The choir's going to help me this morning. They'll keep an eye on you. And I need you to imagine in your mind the following scenario. You're a young mom. You're 34 years old. You have three children under five. Your best friend is Anne. Anne is married to John. She has four children under 11. You are young, active, energetic families 
constantly tired because you're juggling so many priorities. And as you go into daycare to drop off your three wee ones, you see Anne coming up the corridor, and you're expecting her to be her typical self. She's a dental hygienist. She's full of life and energy. John and her often will be with you and your husband and family for weekends away together at the beach, and you are the best of friends. Now, she's coming towards you. She's not smiling, and her head is not up. In fact, her head is down. She's looking at the floor. She's going very quickly, and when she draws close to you, you expect her to lift her head and smile, and she just keeps on walking. And you're so surprised, you kind of stop and watch her and think, what is going on? And you drop off your wee ones. You go back to the car. You immediately text her and say, what's wrong? Anything I can do? How can I help? And immediately she texts back and says, I'll call tonight. And when she calls that evening, she can't hold a conversation for the first three or four minutes because she's tearful. And she's not just a little weepy, she is tearful. Big sobs. And eventually as she calms down and begins to breathe better and the story comes out, John has been told at the end of the month he's unemployed. His company has been bought over. His career with that firm is now at an end. And then Anne takes it a step further, and she tells you that she's expecting. And she asks, can you meet her for lunch the next day? And she says to you, she's thinking of terminating the pregnancy, and she needs your advice. What do you say to Anne? How do you counsel her? How do you get alongside and encourage her and strengthen her and equip her to deal with all of those issues? It is one thing looking at medical ethics in the abstract. It's another thing dealing with young moms and dads in a situation that is utterly devastating for them. And they're looking at all of the options, termination being one of them. How does she deal with that? That's the messiness and challenge of living out your faith in a 21st century context. Is it sensitive? Of course. Is it painful? Absolutely. Is it a subject that generates more heat than light at times? Definitely. But in the midst of all of the confusion, all of the debate, let me be clear what science is clear about. The Mayo Clinic reports that approximately 21 days following conception, the fetus develops a heart which begins to pump blood approximately 28 days after conception. The American Pregnancy Association explains that during the fourth week following conception, the lungs, jawbone, and nasal cavity begin to develop. In the fourth week, during the period, the hands and feet develop small buds that eventually become fingers and toes. And during the fifth week following the fertilization, every bodily organ has developed. In the fifth week, this is the start of the embryonic period. All the baby's major systems and structures develop. The embryo cells multiply and start to take on specific functions. This is called differentiation. Blood cells, kidney cells, and nerve cells develop. 
The embryo grows rapidly and the baby's external features begin to form. The baby's brain, spinal cord and heart begin to develop and the gastrointestinal tract starts to form. Week six to seven, arms and leg buds begin to grow. The baby's brain forms into five different areas. Some cranial nerves are visible. Eyes and ears begin to form. The baby's heart continues to grow and now beats at a regular rhythm. Blood pumps through the main vessels. Week eight, arms and legs have grown longer. Hands and feet begin to form and look like little paddles. The baby's brain continues to grow and the lungs start to form. In the ninth week, nipples and hair follicles form. Arms grow, elbows develop, baby's toes can be seen. All baby's essential organs have begun to grow. And finally, and I'm not going to go through every week, you'll be glad to hear. And finally, science tells us that the entire genetic code which determines a person's physical characteristics, in other words, height, face, shape, hair, and eye color, is established at the point of conception. Not 21 days after or 36 days after, but at the point of conception. From the very beginning, the fetus is a human child. The child's humanity is verifiable in every cell of the body. Multiple volumes, hundreds of volumes are available in the discipline of science that will tell us exactly what's been outlined. There is no question in the minds of the scientific community that life exists in the womb. And yet folks would push back and often when they push back, they push back on this basis. It's called the actuality principle. And the argument is this. A person has the right to life only when capable of functioning in an intellectual, moral, social manner, conscious of their surroundings and capable of independent thought and reflection. Until an individual is capable of being a personal functioning entity, the person has no right to life. Now, allow me to use a personal illustration here, and please forgive me for that. Back in 2005, I very suddenly became ill. I had a heart attack and was taken to ICU. The intensive care unit on that Friday night, they put me into a medically induced coma, and I was on life support from Friday evening to Sunday morning. And during that period, all of the medical staff would say to you that I was not capable of functioning in an intellectual, moral, social manner, conscious of my surroundings and capable of independent thought and reflection. Did that mean that Ruth and Michael and the rest of her family could rightly have switched off life support and that would have been justified? No. Imagine a wee one who is five minutes old, tidied up by the nurse, wrapped in a blanket given to mom, and his mom holds this wonderful miracle Is this child capable of intellectual, moral, social behavior? conscious of their surroundings and capable of independent thought and reflection? No. What about at seven days or 14 days or 21 days? Does that mean we have the right to take that life? 
Life is sacred. It is self-evident. That's what Scripture teaches from the moment of conception to the moment of natural birth. And that's why Christians, when we engage with society and the culture around us, we say life is precious. It is God's great gift to us. And we cannot marginalize it and we cannot minimize it. And we never take it for granted. Several years ago, when we last looked at this subject on a Sunday morning, I read to you a letter from a lady in the congregation. And it was so impactful that a couple of weeks later, I asked the lady if she'd be willing to be interviewed by me in the course of a service, and she was more than comfortable doing that. And this is the letter that she wrote. My first abortion was at age 18. I was young naive, one of the good girls. He was handsome, a pastor's son, a few years older. He was my first love. He gave me a pre-engagement ring, and I gave him my virginity. And I was told, excuse me, I gave him my virginity. My mother and the doctor arranged for the abortion to be in the hospital, and I was told it was just a blob of tissue. Afterwards, the abortion was never talked about by my family, or my boyfriend. It was as if it never happened. It caused their relationship to end. I was heartbroken, and my innocence was shattered. Consequently, my life took an entirely different direction than it would have done had I done things God's way. My second abortion was age 24. My boyfriend of three years insisted I have one. I sobbed as he yelled at me, all the way to the abortion clinic. He dropped me off, paid for it, and went to work. I have never felt so alone or so full of despair as that day. I don't remember a lot about it. I only told one good friend what had happened, but not my mother. I was too ashamed. The relationship broke up shortly after the abortion as well. In 1981, at age 27, I got pregnant again. And this time, I knew without a doubt that I could not have another abortion. The father wanted to keep the baby, and so we chose life and marriage. And we had two more beautiful children and were married for 11 years until he died suddenly. During my years as a single mother, God was pursuing me. And finally, I surrendered and gave my life to him. I finally accepted that he truly loved me and that I was forgiven for all the sins of my past. God redeemed me, gave me a brand new life in Christ. Thirty-five years after my abortion, I attended a forgiven and set-free Bible study given by Piedmont Women's Center, and there I learned that God had removed my sins as far as the East is from the West, and I would remember them no more. I was truly healed and set free from the guilt and shame I had carried all those years. Now my life verse is, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. The difference between my old life and my new life in Christ has been a miraculous testimony of God's transforming and redeeming love and grace and mercy. And oh, the baby daughter I chose life for got married in 20, excuse me, in 2001. 
and has blessed me with two precious grandchildren that I love with all my heart, and I thank God for them every day. Thank you, Lord, for eternally changing my family tree. Is abortion a sensitive issue? Is it painful? Has it to be dealt with carefully and prayerfully? Absolutely. Because our job as a congregation of Christian people is, of course, to protect and pray for the child in the womb, but also for the moms going through these challenging, difficult, painful experiences, and to remind them of His love and His grace. This time last year, when the Dobbs decision came down from the Supreme Court, the result of that decision was this, that the protection of life in the womb was the responsibility now of the state rather than the federal government. And 26 states have put in place new laws to protect the child in the womb. Why? Because we believe in the sanctity of human life, but we also believe in caring for the young mom or whatever age and stage the mom is at. We believe that education and adoption and support whether that be financially, emotional, psychological, mental, is so important in the midst of all of that that there are other options. And life, excuse me, life itself is one of those options and is in fact the best option. When David writes those words, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. He is talking about the sanctity of life. Now this week, as we seek to live out our faith in the midst of this 21st century cultural context, our job is to celebrate life, give thanks to God for it, and offer support and help and prayer and care and compassion for those who need it and say, there are other options out there. Let me help. That's how you make a difference in your community. That's how you transform the spiritual heart of a city. That's when other people pay attention, when they know you care. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture this morning. Thank you for its challenge and we freely confess that it is difficult for us to deal with these issues, and yet you call us to live for such a time as this. Father, for those of us who struggle with difficult circumstances, challenging situations relating to the sanctity of life, bring healing and wholeness to us. Help us to understand again your transforming love and your healing grace. Father, allow us, please, to live for you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.